This is a review from Blue Dog 63, The Missing Guide for Grief. I read Sherry's book and I have wanted to write a review for a few weeks. However, I needed time to process the sage wisdom and raw vulnerability that this book represents. I felt I had to sit with it for a while before I could pinpoint what this book meant to me and how to put it into words. Society does a lot to distract us and push us to move on without truly processing and managing the very human experience of grief. This book is the antidote to that foolishness and gives the reader very real tools to acknowledge, honor, and heal from any level of grief you may and will experience. It is an essential topic, not too often discussed, and this book provides the missing roadmap, a must-read. Whew. I do read all of the reviews that people write about Touching Two Worlds and all of my work, but it's actually really hard for me to get through them because they're so like right to the heart. I guess that's sort of what I get for writing a book that is so very right to the heart. The reviews matter because it's one of the few feedback loops that I as an author get. I can see sales numbers and I have, you know, conversations with folks, but the reviews are really a very interesting kind of permanent set of responses that are a public display of what a particular piece of work means. So since I became an author, I, I definitely write more reviews. <laughs> I spend a lot more time trying to support my friend's work in that way uh, because it does matter. It matters to the algorithms and, you know, Amazon sales and blah, blah, blah. But it, it also actually really matters to the person. So I'm on a, a bit of a quest to try to get 100 reviews for Touching Two Worlds before Thanksgiving. So getting back to the non-social, <laughs> non just like commercial aspect, uh, if you care to contribute a review to the cause, it's very helpful to me and to the book just logistically, but it's also really meaningful to me on the human level. So just, just a question, just a consideration, an invitation. Please leave a review if you've read the book or, you know, skimmed the book or intend to read the book. <laughs> just kidding. Um, today's conversation is a really lovely conversation that I had with my friend Mike Bursick. And Mike runs a community called Wayfinders, where he gathers small groups of entrepreneurs for pretty intense cross-cultural trips. I actually am in a few days going on a trip with Mike to Morocco and super excited about the way that he hosts and thinks about how to facilitate connection for entrepreneurs who often are a little bit connection starved. I think many of us are connection starved, but entrepreneurs in particular, because we're at the top of the pile. You know, we don't necessarily have a lot of peers within our businesses or within our communities. And so the need to find these places of true connection is a really significant need. And I, I love Mike's model, just going to be honest, because I myself have a strong adventure travel streak. So this idea of creating these sort of extraordinary, pretty intense experiences where people bond and have this shared sense of seeing the world in a really new and interesting way. So um, Mike is very thoughtful about his approach, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. So here it is. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. 
We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. You have such an interesting business, Um, and I'd love to start just by asking you about what your business is. Well, the way I describe it when people ask me, I, I give them the shorthand, which is I help entrepreneurs become themselves. And the longhand version of that is I host, I host adventures in, in very remote and spectacular places around the world for entrepreneurs only. And the events are a mix of adventure. They're a mix of introspection, of immersing into very different cultures. And I lead people through a process of, you know, what I call radical self-awareness and shining a light on who we are, both both as a personal process and as a group dialogue. And then as of late, what has been very, very much uh, alive has been taking that, all of those individual stories and, and tying them into the greater human story that's unfolding right now at this moment in time. And uh, hopefully that's teasing enough, but doesn't give you too much. <laughs> Well, I hear these layers, right, of helping entrepreneurs become themselves. So there's the individual unit of one body with one mind feeling connected. And then you're looking at these connections between people. And then this, again, larger connection to the human story. Why does it feel important for folks to leave their daily context and go to these kind of wild, extraordinary places why is that an important part of the recipe? Well, there's a few there's a few answers to that. One is that it is really important to leave the daily context and it's really hard it's really hard to do this kind of work of, you know, radical self-awareness of ex- exploring when we are still immersed not only, you know, in our regular day-to-day. Of course, I'm not going to run events in people's offices or their homes, but even in a familiar context, there's still aspects of, of that that draw upon your consciousness, your subconscious. And so I find that when I take people far away from that context, as far away as I possibly can, and and, and drop them into something that's completely completely alien to them, like like a very remote fishing village in Western Greenland or at the edge of a, a rainforest in Uganda, that that opens up something. It opens up a space for other influences to come in and allows space for the subconscious to come up and a little bit more of the feeling and less of the thinking, which I think is, I think is important. And there's, I choose places that, that are quite remote. And some of them, we're smack dab in the middle of nowhere. It takes enormous amount of time and effort to get there. And that's another aspect of it is that that level of commitment just to get to where we're where we're going to say something about the people who are there, the commitment that they're willing to put into it. And it's and it says they are saying something to themselves about their own commitment to this process of going through this. And and so I, I'm probably I will probably do some, you know, local versions here around Toronto of doing this and as remote as I can get, you know, within a couple hours of Toronto. But I will still continue to do these in these wild places around the world because the cultures in these place are, places also have a lot to offer because, you know, human culture, I just look at it as all these myriad 
interpretations of what it means to live a human life, right? And they're, and they're so very different. So our typical day-to-day context of living in urban North America is extremely different from what a shaman living in the Amazon jungle, we were there last November, the way he interprets the world, the way he interprets his place in it, the way he finds his meaning within that world. Nobody who went to the Amazon has come back and decided, I'm going to go live in the rainforest and become a shaman. But they have had their worldview altered by being in that place. And I think that's really important when we are force-fed this culture and this interpretation of what it means to be human every day by companies that that have billion-dollar budgets. It's important to be able to step back from that and realize, hey, this isn't the only game in town. There's other ways to do this. Peel back the layers of what's real, what we think is real. How did this start for you? Was there a trip that you went on that sparked this realization as a a tool that can be so core to helping people reconnect with themselves? Or, you know, I guess, like, how'd you come up with the idea, Mike? Well, it's interesting because as I look back and now I've been doing this five years, it's very much mirrored my own journey, which was, you know, trying to, uh, my previous company, I, I was very much in that, you know, I call it a trap. I felt like I had to scale the business and I fell in this trap of, I had these crazy big ambitions and I had my foot on the gas for years and years, raising money from investors, hiring staff, expanding, constantly following that. And that got more and more challenging and less and less satisfying. And so I left, the, I left that business a while back, sold it. But as I was exiting that business, I was already removing myself from the day to day of that business. And I wanted to start something new. And I'd been going to these entrepreneur conferences you know, various entrepreneur conferences around North America. And they all typically follow the same format, which was, you know, there's a speaker and then there's breakout sessions or workshops. There might be a networking break in the hallway, a meal, another speaker, another workshop. And the real value I got from these conferences was the connections I made, but I really had to work hard because the format wasn't there. And having been in the adventure travel business for about 20 years at that point, I knew that when people are outside and they're having fun and they're doing challenging things together, they tend to bond quickly. So actually, my first few events were really just a mix of conference and adventure. I still had some workshops. I still had the odd speaker, but we were spending time on bikes and hiking. And it's iterated over the years, as I said, sort of mirroring my own my own journey of discovery. And as I started running events farther and farther afield, I noticed that the places we went to left an indelible mark on people. You know, up until that point, it had been like, let's have some fun together. Let's make some connections. Let's learn a little bit about how to, you know, grow our businesses or whatever. It was mostly business focused. And then I realized that there was this really important personal journey going on for people and for myself. And so over the last few years, I've really leaned leaned into that and creating a context for that. So we, we tend to not have a lot of conversations about business. It's really about, you know, how do we live meaningful human lives? How do we talk about these things that we struggle with that we might not have other places to do this with because you know the people who come to my events they have business coaches they you know they've joined EO they have people who are going to help them grow their business but they don't necessarily have somebody who's going to talk to them about you know their struggles with their mental and emotional well-being their challenges with their relationships their search for meaning their whatever it is that they're they're looking for so that's it's iterated over the years and and it's arrived at this really beautiful place where for seven or eight days or nine days, we create this beautiful container of people coming together to to explore these really important themes. When I was 19, I took my very first international trip to West Africa, where I, I lived for a year. And it was 
really, really fundamental to sort of everything that has become who I am as an adult. And I think one of the most, there are two, like really core experiences that absolutely sort of infiltrated every piece of me. And one piece is, of course, the sense of connection to all people, you know, being being with women as they were birthing their children, which was you know, one of the experiences I had during that year, or being with kids who were working in the market and learning to dance their dances and play their games. And that sort of sense of shared joy and shared camaraderie in the human experience really, um, I think, has been foundational to every part of my work. The other thing, though, is this uh, sense of seeing all these different lives and understanding that there are lots of ways to do life and lots of ways to be happy, which really kind of blew my mind as a 19-year-old who was on this track of like, these are the steps, this is the thing that must be done in order to have a good life. I only had like one, maybe two pictures of what that could be. But after that year, of course, I came home with like a thousand pictures of what that could be. And that's a been very, very useful to me over the course of my life in in every way possible. So I can so imagine the richness of these experiences for people. I want to maybe follow up a little bit on the inner journey. Like when you talk about people connecting with themselves or really becoming who they are, why is that important? Like what's the disconnection that you're working against when you host these kinds of experiences? Before I get into that, I wanted to mention that when I was 20, a little bit older than you were, uh, I, did, I took a six-month trip through Southeast Asia and it had the same transformative effect on me. And it was just as a 20-year-old, like, what is going on? This is the same kind of thing. Like, look at all the different ways people are living their lives here. And this is, um, it's amazing. It's just given me so many more ideas. But back to your question, you've touched on this word connection and, and, it's, and it's flip side disconnection a few times here. So I wanted to talk about that in a, f- in a few different manifestations. And I'll start with the one you're talking about, disconnection from self. I'm about two thirds of the way through of read, reading Gabor Maté's new book, The Myth of Normal, where he talks about this society and the culture that we have, that we have created in, in the Western world and dissects in very painstaking detail all the ways that we have created a culture that essentially disconnects us from ourselves. And what I'm trying to do in my own personal journey and guide my participants through is is a journey back to wholeness. And we all carry imprints of, you know, our childhood. These are our formative experiences. And I, I take a little bit of maybe a Jungian approach to this in that, our parents, our caregivers, our teachers, you know, all well-meaning, wonderful people who are doing their best. But in the process, whether it's through outright violence or whether it's through verbal violence or whatever it is, do a lot of injury to, to us as children. And we internalize the message. For a lot, of, a lot of us, we internalize the message that certain emotions are to be repressed, that these ways of being that I have are not allowable. And so we learn at an early age to repress certain parts of ourselves just in order to, you know, our primary, our primary need as children is to be looked after and, and cared for and to have a sense of attachment to those caregivers. When we take that message in that, you know, this emotion is wrong, like, you know, look at the, the classic timeout type of thing. Hey, I, I, this, you know, this child is, is acting in a way that I don't, that I don't approve of. So I'm just going to go stick them in another room. Well, what is the message is the child 
getting, you know, that two-year-old, three-year-old, whatever, they're getting the message that these emotions that I'm having, my own emotions, are not right. And so we learn at a very early age to repress certain parts of ourselves, and then we carry that through to adulthood. And whether it's anger, whether it's sadness, or whether it's a certain perspective on the world, whatever, we, we learn that that's not acceptable, and, and we bury that deep inside. I know you know the world of, of trauma well. This is, this is your domain. Where I think a lot of people have this misconception of you know trauma with a capital T being you know sexual abuse or physical abuse or whatever, I, I can tell you from some of the work that I've done myself that some of these are just such pedestrian everyday traumas. Right? I had a girl in grade seven who who just you know broke my heart with a note that she sent me, and through the experiences I've had un unpacking and uncovering all of this kind of stuff, discovered that that left a, a huge imprint on me and and my approach to love. So I'm giving you a very, very <laughs> deep and, and, and broad look at this, but I think it's important as adults to discover all the ways that we have buried parts of ourselves and uncover those places and, and find spaces to let them out. And so a lot of, a lot of what I do is creating a, a psychologically safe space for people to just let everything out, what, you know, their struggles, the parts of them they've repressed, you know, there was a participant on my recent or two participants on my recent Uganda event who just really rediscovered their love of dancing. And we spent so much time dancing there and because Ugandans love to dance and it just lit something up in them, you know, to be able to let that part of them that they that they had buried and repressed. And they, they you know, they internalized the message that dancing is not OK. It's weird, you know, whatever. So that that's, you know, the part of disconnection from self is just rediscovering like rediscovering our our true essence and our true nature and i think that's really important because when i think humans do a lot of violence to themselves to the world when that true nature is repressed and i think it's important for humans to be able to to uncover that and, and work with it in in healthy ways how do you help that to be safe well a part of that is just through just little subtle messages that vulnerability is okay in this space, that being yourself is okay in this space. And a lot of it is just modeling that behavior. So I, I lead with my own vulnerability. And, um, you know, I've got lots that I'm struggling with. And so I, I share that up front. And what's beautiful now is that because I have so many people returning to my events, you know, a typical event is at least 50 to 70% alumni. They from day one are modeling this. And then the other people who are coming in for the first time, they see this and they say, oh, they, and they take the message that, oh, it's okay to just be myself. And ultimately, ultimately, you know, it's trying to counter that message that everything is amazing. Life is wonderful. We go around with this, you know, pretending everything's great when everybody is struggling with something, right? And it, it starts, you know, in the lead up to the event. So I will I will pair people together and I'll ask them to and, you know, schedule a Zoom call and then I'll seed it with that Zoom call with a couple of questions that might bring out something a little bit deeper. And so just bringing the message to them that your whole self is okay here. We're all, we're all struggling with something. We're all messed up in some way and it's okay here. And then that just sort of self-reinforces and, and people, real, you know, they might share something really personal and then just find that instead of being shunned, that the group is very accepting of that. You know, when people unburden themselves and show their human side, we naturally connect to that. So when that gets reinforced a few times, then it just becomes this self-reinforcing feedback loop of, hey, anything goes here and I, and I won't be and I won't be cast out. How does that 
translate back to the real world, right? Because you have this wonderful safe container in an isolated experience that is, I I mean, I I can imagine all the ways that it's opening and challenging and life-changing, but then you're, you're taking this sort of like newly opened human and then placing them back in the same context. So how, how does that work? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, over the last few events, I have spent a lot of time thinking about the reintegration process. And we spent a lot of time talking about that towards the conclusion of the event. This context that we've created together does not mirror the real world. It's very different. I wish it mirrored the real world, but it doesn't. And I wish that 10 years from now that that would become more of the norm than the exception, but it's not. And we talk as a group about what does that look like when we reintegrate? What parts of myself that I've hidden can I share? And what parts might need to you know, remain a little bit more private or find specific context in which to share those? So one of, one of the things I do is at my events is I, is I put people, my typical event is about 20 to 25 people. So we do have large, you know, large circles in, in which we share, but a lot of the stuff happens in small groups, whether it's pairs or groups of four, or a group of six, something like that. The um, group of four, I'll share a little story, it's called a Moai. And Moai comes from the island of Okinawa. And they are these these groups that people are put into. And, and Okinawa is one of the famed blue zones where people live extremely long lives. And one of the, you know, as people have been researching these blue zones, they've discovered that one of the things that contributes to this longevity is strong social connections. And in Okinawa, it's very intentional. You are often placed as a small child in in a moai with with other children. And some of these groups endure decades, decades later, you know, where you have people in their 90s and even in their 100s still meeting. So that's the inspiration that that takes it from. When the event is done, we follow up with people and, and we have meetings within their moai so that they have that safe container to continue to explore these themes of authenticity and vulnerability. And ultimately, it, you know, it's, it's a process for each person to discover where can I bring this level of authenticity, this level of vulnerability? Because to carry that around hidden comes with a great cost when you're armored up, when you're wearing the mask, doing that. You know, the people that come to my events, they often bear like just exhaustion from, you know, whether it's with their investors or whether it's with, with their staff team or, you know, even at home to constantly bottle that stuff inside is exhausting, right? And so for each person, it then becomes a process of what is feasible here in terms of showing that, right? You're not going to break down crying on, on an investor call with your, you know, your investors, but maybe you can share a little bit of what's going on with your staff or, you know, friends. We live in a culture where even with, even with good friends, you know, I, I have a few groups of friends where I might know these people for years, but I really don't know anything about what's going on with their inner lives. And then I have other groups of friends where anything goes and everything goes. And it's important to find those places where you can have those discussions. Those places where your vulnerability is safe and that you can yeah, do the deep dive into what your inner world looks like and how you're growing and changing in those places without needing to hide it. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say a little bit about why people who journey or sort of undergo this kind of radical process, how you think that is potentially going to show up, you know, let me say it a different way. Like you talked about how this kind of self-expansion and self-observation can then 
reconnect us to the larger human experience in a different way. So what's the what's the meta level of change? I get sort of the interchange, the relational friend to friend kind of connection that can happen. What's your vision for the 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 bigger picture of this in the world? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So I, I share a particular perspective of where we are in time. Gabor Mate outlines it pretty well in, in his new book, The Myth of Normal. We live in a moment in time where we live in a culture that is hostile to, to human thriving. It's even hostile to human life. I am not an anti-capitalist. I, you know, capitalism has, has brought us incredible innovation, incredible prosperity, but it is left completely unfettered. It is destroying our planet. There's, if you're in the world of denying, denying that, then you are practicing some incredible willful ignorance, probably because you're in a position of great privilege and you are really enjoying the spoils of capitalism. To continue to be a climate denier, for instance, is is to completely fly in the face of any reason or evidence or anything like that. And the simple math of how we are are living, where, you know, I'm I'm not going to get too deeply into economics. My background is is as an economist, but we live live in an interest-based capitalism society, which demands continued growth. And growth in our society means higher and higher levels of consumption of resources. And those resources are finite. I don't think anybody's discovered infinite reservoirs on on this planet. And so that math is eventually going to run out, whether it's, you know, next year, whether it's in 20 years, we are butting up against some very hard limits. And I'm not advocating that we get rid of capitalism. I believe that it needs some uh, strong limits in, t- in how it's operated. We're not here to talk about that, but I could talk about that for hours. That That is my training. I have lots of ideas how we can do that. But I also believe that it starts with w- what I might call more of a spiritual revolution. And by that, I mean ad- addressing these issues of connection, connection to self, connection to others, connection to the natural world, connection to a sense of something greater. And when you are disconnected from all of these things, self, others, nature, something greater, we as humans feel that as a, as a tremendous void. You know, we, we are on a very basic level, we are wired, our, our neurochemistry is wired to connect with others. And that's how it's evolved over hundreds of thousands of years. And so we have epidemics of loneliness throughout, throughout the Western world. And when, when humans feel that deep void, it's very easy for them to fall into the trap of thinking that they can fill that void through consumption. Right. And then we have we have these multi-billion dollar uh, we have multi-billion dollar advertising industries that are bent on exploiting that void. They know it's there. And so, you know, we think that buying a pair of Nikes is going to fill that void because the messaging is not around our shoes are the greatest. It's it's about connecting to something greater and a sense of belonging by buying this pair of shoes. And of course, that's a that's a false bill of goods. They're not going to do that for you. And so if we don't change that course and we are not going to get out of these messes through technology. We, we like to fall in the myth that technology is going to solve all these issues and everybody's going to convert to electric cars and solar power and we'll, we'll fix it all. We don't, we don't have the resources to do that. We have 3% of the lithium we need in order to create all that solar energy. So it's not going to happen. And so what I believe needs to happen is that spiritual revolution where we rediscover these very, very human things of connecting with each other, of maintaining connection with the natural world, understanding our place in the world and in the cosmos. And when we do that, when you have that, you don't feel the need to, you don't feel the need to buy all these things in order to satisfy that whole, right? Like I, I know, you know, you and I have spent time together in, in, really beautiful environments and contexts where all we needed was 
a cup of coffee and somebody else to talk to. And those are, you know, the time I've spent with friends and loved ones. Those are the most meaningful memories of our, of my life. And of course I have to take care of my, you know, my basic needs, but beyond that, all, all the most amazing experiences of my life are free. And I, and I say that, of course, you know, somebody who's flying people halfway around the world, and that's very much a, uh, on my mind. And one of the things I'm trying to shift is people's experience of travel, right? So that, you know, we need tourism. Tourism fuels a lot of developing world economies, but people to travel more meaningfully where it's like, I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to spend a month there and I'm going to really immerse myself there instead of five, you know, weekend trips down to the Caribbean or whatever. We can all still maintain a large part of this wonderful abundance we have, but just dialing it back a little and focusing more on these more meaningful aspects of the human experience, which, which is that connection um, and, and all those wonderful forms that I mentioned. And when you do that, you just, you cease to need anything. I could just sit in the woods with some good friends for weeks at a time, as long as, you know, I have some berries and whatever nearby. <laughs> maybe, maybe some coffee. <laughs> yeah, maybe some coffee. I'm being extreme here. But, you know, when, when those needs are, are satiated, we need so much less. You know, when we are trapped in the, the grinding wheels of a, a culture that demands that we work 60 hours and that we keep consuming and where we're constantly told we don't have enough because we see our neighbors with more, then we have to fly to the Caribbean for a week to escape it all. But we're not really escaping it. We're coming back to the same things and then it's back onto the hamster wheel. And, you know, the answer to that is so complex and complicated moving away from that. But it starts with with what I'm trying to create is a sm it just small groups of people who who are reestablishing that connection and are and are becoming part of the solution rather than perpetuating the problem. So that, that's how it ties into the, the bigger journey. So it's not just about self-actualization, but it's self-actualization in the context of a societal self-actualization. And the, the freedom and space to safely ask the question, what else is possible? Well, because we haven't asked that question, right? We, we've, we've just bought into this, into this story and we continue to live that story. And we can't even begin to imagine what that other story might look like. And, and, you know, we were chatting before, before we, we officially started chatting here, but we were chatting about, you know, this, this past weekend, we had our, our street fair and um, there was this just wonderful community potluck, you know, 50 people sitting, sitting around this long table and just connecting with each other and looking after each other and everybody pitching in and getting to know one another. And, you know, that took very little other than some Brussels sprouts and some green beans and, you know, a few fold up tables. And so my particular take on it is we humans are very loss averse. We don't like losing things. And so we're probably not willing and willingly going to give up all these beautiful, wonderful, shiny things that we've learned to take for granted. That's probably going to be forced on us. But what's what's going to come out on the other side is more of that type of experience where we're just sitting around in our neighborhood, connecting with the people around us, looking after each other, making sure everyone's okay. And that, that is a wonderful thing. And pretty core to our existence, to what it means to be human, a kind of simple togetherness. And that's how we live for, you know, 99.5% of our existence is exactly like that. Well, Mike, if people are curious about joining one of your trips or learning more about what you're doing, what's the best place for them to follow along? Uh, the website is a pretty good place to start, way-finders.com, uh, way-finders.com. And we can put that in the show notes too for people that 
want to click and learn more about all the trips. So you've got Bhutan coming up soon, Morocco. You're going back to Uganda next uh, May, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sort of an amazing repertoire of experiences that you are offering. And I I haven't yet been on one of your trips, but I've heard from so many people about the really authentic invitation that you're talking about. So I guess the what you're describing as the philosophy of this work really comes across in practice, which is its own, I think, particular accomplishment. Well, the, the other thing that I want to state, because, you know, I, I'm talking about these big themes and it can all sound very heavy handed, but I'm also, as you know, I'm a big advocate for play and laughter and silliness. And so those form a, you know, a big part of the experience. We can't, we can't spend all our time in the mud. And, and just in general, you know, th these are big themes that we have to address in the coming years. Like I, I've been involved in the nonprofit charitable world as well. And it's very easy for people to fall into just this really intense earnestness all the time. And that, that's what leads to burnout, right? And so you can tackle the fact that our world is burning, but also make time for dance and play and laughter. And, and that's important because that sustains the work that, uh, that is needed. So. Right. Well, you're preaching to the choir. You're talking to somebody who created a circus show about grief and suicide. So I get it. I get it. We can do both. We can have the the beautiful, delightful, playful journey and have it be very, very meaningful and deep at the same time. Thank you so much for your time. What a joy to talk with you. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.